The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Okay, gang, for this episode, I'm returning to the amazing Spider-Man. Because it always comes back to Spider-Man. Specifically, the run of comics written by Len Wein and drawn by Ross Andrew. This is part three of that particular endeavour, covering issues 161 through 166. Part one was in episode 199, Part 2 was in episode 202, and prior to that I've done episodes covering every issue written by Stan Lee and the David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane run. Go and listen to them. If you've listened to them, listen again. I'll tell someone who hasn't listened to them to do so. Issue 161 and 162 comprise a two-part adventure, as do all of the comics covered in this show. Spider-Man teams up with Nightcrawler of the all-new X-Men to tackle the Punisher and Hitman, a kind of anti-hero version of the Punisher, which is really one of the finest examples of Ouroboros I can think of. The cover by Gil Kane and John Romita is up to the usual standards and sees Spider-Man and Nightcrawler duke it out over Coney Island. And the Nightcrawler came a-prowling, prowling is by the usual creative team at this time. Len Wein, writer, with Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito providing the pencils and inks. It's actually a very well-structured story. The setup is enticing and, within the confines of a Marvel comic, believable. Nightcrawler reads of the death of an old friend in the Daily Bugle, an old friend who works at Coney Island. By the rules of comic book coincidence, Peter Parker, Murray Jane, Harry Osborn and Liz Allen are double dating at Coney Island that very day. The very day another man is shot dead. Nightcrawler and Spider-Man get into a fight of misunderstanding. Our heroes part, regroup and another fight happens. Into all this wanders the Punisher, concerned that whoever the sniper is killing all these people, it's giving him a bad name. Not that the Punisher has a particularly good name, but you see where I'm going with that, don't you? The Punisher also doesn't seem to show a drop of concern for all the dead people. Gee, I wonder why I never considered him a good guy. Part 1 ends with the Punisher confronting our mismatched and misunderstood heroes. The devil is in the details. We open with the new X-Men, Nightcrawler, Wolverine and Colossus all engaging in manly activities in the Danger Room. And it's novel to note nowadays that this was at a time when no one knew there even was a new X-Men and Wolverine wasn't the powerhouse badass he is today. Rather a massive tool and a pain in the ass. We cut to Coney Island and the Coney Island scenes are massive fun. 
Ross Andrew was famous for his fastidious attention to detail, and this is reflected in these scenes. You can smell the hot dogs, hear the screams of the crowd, taste the candy floss. Andrew makes me believe I've been to Coney Island, even though I never have, through the shared experience of this kind of carnival atmosphere. There's also a lovely irony to these scenes that Peter Parker, who has leapt over tall buildings in but a few bounds and swung from the highest heights in the city, is terrified of roller coasters. There's some moments that make you go, hmm. Peter is in the crosshairs of the sniper, but we only later learn that his spider sense kicked in. The later victim of the sniper is a person of colour, so are these crimes race-related? This would have been an interesting way to go with this story, and a better reason for Spider-Man to team up with the Punisher, that the killer thereafter was a racist. But in part two, we learn it's just random, which means there was no reason to not shoot Peter, other than he has plot armour being the hero of the story. Second thing that makes you go, hmm. Peter, Murray, Jane, Harry and Liz go to the hot dog stand. Liz and Harry order two fries for themselves, whilst Peter orders one hot dog with everything on it for Murray Jane. Only we see him eating it in the next panel, and Murray Jane doesn't seem to get anything. For once, the fight of misunderstanding is understandable. For reasons, the sniper drops the weapon that kills the kid on the roller coaster, which begs the question, did he drop his weapon after killing Nightcrawler's friend? That sure seems expensive, having to buy a gun every time you shoot somebody with it. Anyway, when Spider-Man sees Nightcrawler, who he doesn't know, remember, Nightcrawler has the weapon in his hands, sensibly covered so as to not taint the evidence. Spider-Man doesn't so much leap to a conclusion as to take a step as to a conclusion's a napping. Nightcrawler sees Spider-Man retrieve his camera and decides to steal it back to keep the new X-Men a secret. For now. Spider-Man, not Peter, learns from Robbie Robertson that the Punisher may be responsible. This seemed like a weird scene. Spider-Man and Robbie have never been chummy-chummy like, say, Superman and Perry White, so them just hanging around in Robbie's office seemed odd. Until we learn, it's all for setting up the subplot where Jonah has dirt on Spider-Man. The dirt is pictures of Spider-Man dumping Peter Parker's dead body down a smokestack, as seen back in issue 151. Jonah will tease this out until issue 169, proving that long-drawn-out stories aren't just the domain of Netflix. Meanwhile, the Punisher isn't happy about this damage to his rep, and we see here the first seeds being sown as to his redemption, as Marvel starts to take him down the path of anti-hero rather than villain. Curiously, he doesn't use mercy bullets in this issue, gunning down criminals in his effort to learn who is killing these innocent people. We also learn he has vowed to turn himself in if he ever hurts an innocent. One step back, two steps forward. Or is that the other way around? Anyway, you'd have thought while Spider-Man was with Robbie, he'd have used the opportunity to sell the pictures he took earlier whilst the news is still hot. But he couldn't because of contrived plot reasons. 
You see, that conversation had to take place as Spider-Man. It also means that Nightcrawler doesn't see the pictures in the paper and put two and two together and realise that Peter is Spider-Man. But given that Nightcrawler and Spider-Man meet again at Coney Island and have a pointless fight of misunderstanding the sequel proves that Nightcrawler may not be that bright. All these fights of misunderstanding make me think I'm reading Marvel Team-Up. The Punisher arrives as well, having been told that this is where the sniper is, and part one concludes, leading us directly into part two, let the Punisher fit the crime. Most of part two is a disappointing runaround. Nightcrawler, Spider-Man and the Punisher put their differences aside to focus on catching the real villain, Jigsaw. The killings, as I've mentioned, were all random to ruin the Punisher's rep and bring him out of hiding so Jigsaw could take his revenge on the Punisher for ruining Jigsaw's face. Jigsaw's not a particularly interesting villain here, merely another take on the old player-on-the-other-side trope, and it didn't really need three people to take him down, even if Spider-Man's power levels fluctuate drastically. One minute he's bursting free of chains like a bargain-basement Superman, the other is being defeated, not only by the Punisher, but by two random thugs. Of more interest is Mary Jane flirting with Flash to get back at Peter for dumping her again to go and take pictures. I've discussed before that this is petty, whichever way you look at it. If, as the later retcon establishes, Mary Jane knows Peter is Spider-Man, She's being a bit prissy, preventing him going and saving lives to defer to the date. If, as she didn't when Ween wrote this, she doesn't know, then she's interfering with Peter's main source of income and showing no concern that a man has just been killed in front of them. Mary Jane was a self-obsessed narcissist in the Stan Lee days, but she was really petty or vindictive. This is also the first appearance of Marla Madison, who would later marry Jonah before being killed in the Dan Slot Room. Marla is beautifully snarky in this first appearance, telling Jonah she doesn't care if he burns, and showing great glee over the idea of destroying Spider-Man, even though, as she herself points out, she doesn't really have any particular beef against him. She was quite the catch, was Dr. Madison. Issue 163, All the Kingpin's Men sees the return of another old bad guy, the Kingpin, not seen since issue 85, although he had popped up in Captain America in the interim. It will be revealed that the Kingpin is the shadowy figure that has been popping up in the series recently, and it is he who hired the Tinkerer in issue 160. It's rather odd then to keep the Kingpin in the shadows in the early part of this issue, saving his big reveal for the middle. Odd! in that he's on the cover, and the title of the issue is All the Kingpin's Men. Talk about signposting it. Spider-Man, as the issue opens, is enjoying a ride on top of a bus. Where he's been, or where he's going, isn't mentioned. He spots some familiar figures in a non-FAA-registered helicopter stealing a truck. These goons are now revealed to be the Kingpin's goons and have attacked previously in Amazing Spider-Man issues 153, 154 and 160. It's a reasonably action-packed opening to the issue, but the bad guys get away with whatever it was they were stealing. The Kingpin gets all hot and bothered about them nearly killing Spider-Man as he needs him alive for plot reasons. How Spider-Man survives is highly amusing. 
He's dropped from the helicopter, and with no building to web onto and no time to whip up a parachute, he wraps himself in webbing and turns himself into a bouncing ball. Only in the Bronze Age. Doffing his Spider-Man outfit for the calmer, more sedate togs of Peter Parker, Peter heads over to MJ's flat to make peace, and perhaps a little bit of love, but she's not home. It turns out she's at Peter's, along with a lot of his other mates, all of whom have donated to the Provide for Peter Parker's Pad Party. This is highly amusing, and in a cool bit of continuity, these items will wind up sticking around Peter's apartment for the next decade or so. The items include the insensitive Native American statue, the large teddy bear, the multicoloured patchwork quilt, the sprocket-like table, and the Burma shave poster that proclaims, every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. And if you can remember half of those items on this week's Generation game, you can win a boat. Mary Jane is still playing Flash and Peter off each other, so Peter heads to the roof to just get away from it all. Interestingly, he notes that Gwen has been dead for many months now, despite her being dead for two years in the Jerry Conway run. Is this the first example of Marvel's sliding timescale? Hmm. We'll discuss that a little later. Peter's ponderings are interrupted by Harry and Liz, who have chosen this quiet rooftop to get to know each other more closely. As in a boom-chicka-wow-wow kind of way. Peter, not being a fan of dogging, leaves them to it. The next 24 hours take place over in Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, the recently launched sister title to this one. Continuity between the books will vary from non-existent to begrudgingly mentioning it, like here, to being as tight as Khloe Kardashian's trousers. I won't be bopping back and forth between the two here, as I recently read the first Marvel masterworks for spectacular Spider-Man, and the first year or so... It just isn't very good. The second half of the issue turns into a cross between James Bond and the Adam West Batman TV show. Spidey tracks down the Kingpin via his use of electric power, and the Kingpin sits behind a desk in the shadows, waiting for him. When Spider-Man arrives, Kingpin turns dramatically and intones, I've been expecting you, Mr. Spider-Man. All he needs is a cat. Then the Kingpin opens a curtain to reveal a number of his hoods, all waiting to attack. Like in Batman, they all wear the same outfits with Hood 1 and Hood 2 written across the chest. Maybe I just wish the latter had happened. However, the fight that ensues is between Spider-Man and the Kingpin, the Hood's just standing around doing nothing. Once again, the Kingpin displays a superhuman level of strength, even though it's never been explicitly stated that he's anything other than a regular, albeit quite large, human man. He overpowers Spidey, then gasses him to render him unconscious. Spider-Man awakens later, strapped to a table, connected to the Kingpin's son, Richard, via various cables and wires, and a device called Vita Drain. The Kingpin tells Spidey he's about to steal his life. Again, Ween and Andrew deliver a solid, if not particularly groundbreaking or substantial story. The Kingpin has not yet been given the name, Wilson Fisk, so he's referred to as Kingy, or some other euphemism for being fat by Spider-Man, throughout. Peter's friends throwing him a party to get him some furniture is good fun, as are the Harry, Liz, Peter, MJ scenes. This trend of solid, if 
Unremarkable Stories continues into issue 164, Deadline. After an exposition-laden opening, the Kingpin reveals he is about to take Spider-Man's life force to rejuvenate his son, left on the brink of death after a confrontation with Captain America and the Red Skull. Vanessa, Kingpin's wife, referred to throughout as Mrs. K, argues against the procedure, which confused me. At first, the story implies Vanessa has some doubts about trading one man's life for another, even if the other is her son, implying she has concerns on her part as to her husband's intent. Later on, her concern seems to have been performative, as she seemingly couldn't care less about Spider-Man. Was this all an act to get under the Kingpin's skin? Did she genuinely feel concern? Or was she conflicted but got over it after seeing her son resurrected? Certainly the once and future Fisks don't seem to be in a good place, maritally speaking. Richard seems fine, if a little dazed, but Spider-Man, possibly due to his enhanced abilities, is only nearly dead. He still clings to life, but is as weak as a poorly made cup of tea. The Kingpin dumps him in the street. This was a funny moment. Elderly lesbian couple Pruny and Emma witness this event and accuse Spider-Man of being drunk and disorderly. Spider-Man manages to make it home and puts his Peter Parker clothes on. Feverish and delirious, he thinks, I can't give up. Too many people count on me. Aunt May. Mary Jane. I'd argue Mary Jane depends on him. After all, it's Glory who shows up and tries to help him, not MJ. On the one hand, this scene is irrelevant. It would have made far more sense to cut this page entirely and have Spider-Man head straight to Doc Connors, which is where he heads next. On the other, the scene offers a tantalising look at what might have been. Mary Jane and Peter have been on the outs for this past few issues, arguing, playing mind games, and generally not being the healthy couple they once were. I've argued that Mary Jane wasn't the one. Rather, she was what Peter needed after Gwen's death, and he, likewise, was what she needed. A connection, a chance to explore their own relationship in the wake of Gwen's death, a very young death that will have given both Peter and the party girl Murray Jane a real wake-up call with regards to their own mortality. I'm not saying they couldn't reconnect later in life, possibly get it together then, but for now, they were a necessary couple, rather than a couple that were destined to be together. Now imagine if Len Wein had taken that next step. Imagine if he'd split Murray Jane and Peter, and had Peter and Glory become closer. Again, I've argued Glory was wasted. She never really became a full-on supporting cast member, and this could have been what was needed in the Ween era to give the strip something new. Sadly, this was not to be. The rest of the issues follows the rather predictable and standard story beats, which you can probably predict without even having read it. Connors helps Spider-Man by concocting device that will reverse the polarity of the Vitadrain, if he can get close enough to Richard to use it. In the process, Connors is exposed to some chemicals, foreshadowing the return of his alter ego, the Lizard. There's no surprises now it all turns out. Spider-Man manages to trap Richard with his Spider-Sense. That's not how that works. And there's a repeat of the fight between Spider-Man and the Kingpin. Spider-Man uses the device Connors gave him, but wouldn't you know, Spider-Man's life force is such that even with it returned to him, Richard has recovered enough to be fine. The Kingpin is believed to be dead and Vanessa leaves with Richard, 
the end. Ross Andrews' art is especially good in this issue, which, in the letters page, is because we learned that Andrew was allowed access to the Brooklyn Navy Yard for full authenticity. Other than that, this is a routine two-part adventure. Perfectly enjoyable in the moment, but it's doubtful that it sticks in the memory. Another two-part adventure follows. Issue 165, Stegron Stocks the City, and issue 166, The War of the Reptile Men. This story opens with Spider-Man wondering why a fully equipped lab is in a rundown apartment building and who the hell is robbing it? The men strewn all over the floor are S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and the culprit is a shadowy figure who overpronounces his S's and manages to get the drop on our hero. Said shadowy figure is Stegron the Dinosaur Man who is both on the cover and named in the title of the story. So why we're playing it coy, I have no idea. Stegron makes his way to Kurt Connor's apartment. I wish Marvel had decided where Connor's lives. When we first met him, he lived in Florida. Then he had an apartment in the city. He also has a house in the Hamptons. Now he has a laboratory slash apartment in New York. Being a biologist in the Marvel Universe seemingly pays exceptionally well. I do adore that Stegron knocks on the door a few times rather than just bursting in, as if he's quite a polite villain, really. He kidnaps Connor's son, Billy, which isn't polite, and tells Kurt to follow the instructions he's left in his lab. Connor's is to use the chemicals Stegron just stole from S.H.I.E.L.D. to do... something. The middle of the issue is really quite good. Peter confronts Flash about him seeing Mary Jane, and Flash says he didn't know Peter and Mary Jane were an item. Mary Jane has been pretty blatant about being a single girl. Flash doesn't like being anyone's patsy in a game of emotional blackmail, and he goes to talk to Mary Jane about it. This is a remarkably mature and level-headed Flash who now considers Peter a friend and would never rub another man's rhubarb. If you think back to the Gwen Peter days where Flash made no secret of the fact that he fancied the pants off young Miss Stacy and couldn't care less about Peter's feelings on the matter, Flash's development as a character has been pretty great, if we ignore the ill-advised soft reboot of the character in the early 2000s. This leads to Peter and Mary Jane having heart-to-heart, and fair play to Ween for bringing this to a head. This was a fascinating look at both characters. Again, they realised they were brought together by circumstance. Both seem to understand that they aren't really ready for the kind of relationship Peter had with Gwen. She still wants to be footloose and fancy-free, and Peter still wants to rush off and play superhero. They should have split them up here as this really is the end of the road for them as far as their relationship goes. Neither one of them is willing to take it to the next level, so maybe it's best to part ways. They both continue their date and their chat at the Museum of Natural History, where they are taking in the Cosmic Laser Light concert. There is also no effort made to integrate the subplots into the story, rather the story takes a break to allow two pages of subplots to happen. Case in point, after another interlude with Jonah and Marlon Madison, we learn that Stegron, formerly Dr. Vincent Stegron, is trying to reanimate the skeletal remains of some dinosaurs to allow them to rule the Earth once more. His experimentation shuts down the concert Peter and MJ are attending, and Peter leaves to take pictures. MJ is curiously okay with it this time. Something Spider-Man isn't okay with 
is fighting inanimate dinosaur skeletons. Or Stegron, for that matter. The fight leaves our hero trapped under rubble, and when he pulls himself out, Stegron, a dinosaur man, and three life-sized moving dinosaur skeletons have somehow managed to completely disappear without a trace in New York City. An apparently deserted New York City. This seems less credible than three living dinosaur skeletons coming to life in the first place. Maybe we should make a call to Anthony Lepaglia. Elsewhere, Connors turns into the lizard. Didn't see that coming. According to the cover to issue 166, it's now Christmas. The cover is excellent. It's decorated with Christmas wreaths and Spider-Man bursts through some French doors to confront the lizard and Stegron. It's the happy holocaust we call War of the Reptile Men runs the cover, with Spider-Man trapped in the middle. If the lizard doesn't get you, the lizard hisses, then Stegron will, states Stegron. Brilliantly laid out by John Romita with inks by Frank Gaiacoya, this is a stunning cover from an era when pretty much every cover Romita did was a stunner. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. I always say that. Yes, yes, you're right, lovely listener. That's because it's true. Sadly, though, there was no Christmas paraphernalia around anywhere in the last issue, even though Martha Connors and Billy had been Christmas shopping. The splash page sets up that it is Christmas as well, and it's magnificent. Again, I've banged on about this before, but Ross Andrew is a hugely underrated Spider-Man artist, especially when you consider that he was the main title's central artist for five years, and he drew the first Superman-Spider-Man team-up. He draws a great Spider-Man, almost Romita-like in design, but all his own, and the symbolic Stegron behind him is awesome. Now, there may be a gap in between issues here, but I can't see where, as Spider-Man seems to head directly to Kirk Connors to get the dirt on Stegron, but the lizard attacks him as he arrives, so either the lizard just hung around Kurt's lab for a few hours, or Spider-Man has arrived mere moments after Kurt's transformation. Spider-Man then has a chat with Martha and tells her he will get both her husband and her child back alive. Speaking of the child, there always seem to be issues with Marvel's loose relationship with time with regards to young Billy Connors, in that Marvel could never decide how old he was. Here, he seems to be at least 15, which means that Spider-Man is still happening in real time, which contradicts the line I mentioned a short time ago, where Marvel was pushing back Gwen's death from two years to a couple of months. If there is a gap of time, it must be after page five. We switch to Jonah and Marla, who are not where we left them last time. Jonah is now wandering through the car park of ESU as Marla arrives, implying that this is the next morning. That isn't what the writer tells us, however. The writer says it's while Spider-Man putters around Connor's lab, implying that it's happening simultaneously. Anyway, Marla reveals what she and Jonah have been working on. Yet another Spider-Slayer. Oh, joy. The definition of madness is repeating the same behaviour, hoping for a different outcome. By that definition, Jonah must be as mad as a bag of cats. The Spider Slayer never works out for Jonah, and is clearly against the law. Although, 
as I mentioned, this did kind of work out for Jonah in that he ended up marrying Marlon Madsen. Further evidence that this is now the next night, contrary to the writer telling us it's happening simultaneously with Jonah and Marla's big reveal, is the next scene transition that takes us to a Christmas party at the apartment flashers with Harry. This can't be the same evening. Peter left Murray Jane at the light concert wearing a denim jacket and green slacks. She's now wearing a green thigh length dress. It makes no sense that Flash was picking MJ up tonight to take him to a party at his place, nor does it jibe that Peter and MJ were going to this party after the date. Somebody, either the editor or the writer, wasn't paying attention. Let's have a quick look who the writer and editor of this issue was. Oh, it's the same guy. Let's chalk this up to Marvel's curious relationship with time and instead celebrate Liz and Harry announcing their engagement. Congratulations, guys. I hope nothing untoward happens to you at any point in the future, like a retcon that resurrects Harry after his death and divorces you both. Yeah. Yes, I hope nothing like that happens. Looks to camera. The lizard finds Stegron just after he's used his retro-regeneration ray to re-enfleshen a collection of dinosaur bones Stegron stole from the museum. The lizard and Stegron fight. After all, this world isn't big enough for two Master of Reptiles. The dinosaurs then come alive, and the lizard saves Billy rather than fight with Stegron. This makes a change, and I hope this relationship endures throughout the years and doesn't culminate in the lizard eating his own son. Looks again to camera. The dinosaurs spill onto the streets and Spider-Man blinds them with his webbing, leaving them for New York's finest to deal with. What the cops are going to do with some dinosaurs is left unanswered, as I doubt they'll fit in the precinct cells. Spider-Man catches up with Stegron and the lizard, where he promptly lobs some cure down the lizard's throat, but this allows Stegron to take him from behind. However, Spider-Man now has an ace in the hole, and Kirk Connors gets to work reversing the polarity of Stegron's device. He and Spider-Man then stop the dinosaurs, and Spider-Man takes off after Stegron. The snow, however, is becoming oppressive to Stegron, and he starts to falter. In Central Park, he stumbles and falls, disappearing into the water which ices up above him. There's definitely a break in time in between these last two pages, as we are informed by the writer that it is some time later. Spider-Man drops by the corners, but seeing they are having a peaceful family Christmas, he doesn't interrupt. Instead, he wishes the Big Apple and us, the readers, a very happy Christmas. Overall, these are a pretty entertaining collection of issues. They're all typical Bronze Age stories, they follow a specific formula, were thrown right into the action with no real clue what's happening, and the reader is brought up to speed in dialogue, normally expositional, such as in this issue where Martha Connors explains what happened to Billy and Kurt to Spider-Man. It's as good a way as any to accomplish this need. Stegron's plan, like the Kingpins, is wonderfully stupid, both involving silly scientific MacGuffins that make little sense if examined too closely. Stegron has a ray that puts fake flesh on dinosaur bones, but his ultimate goal is to clone an army of dinosaurs, which leads to Spider-Man fighting dinosaurs. It's a high-concept idea that is patently ridiculous, but that's why it works. Bronze Age comics are ridiculous, that's why we love them. 
This plot is insane, and yet works perfectly within its own internal logic. It rattles along at a rapid pace, suffering only from a lack of Peter Parker, and the art is glorious. The ending borrows from War of the Worlds somewhat, but if you're going to steal, steal from the best. And that's where we shall conclude for this time. Again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, please check out the other episodes about Spider-Man if you are so inclined, and recommend them to a friend on the socials. Every little helps. We shall now take a small commercial break while I plug somebody else's podcast, and then I'll be right back with your emails. Well, your emails if you emailed in, obviously. I can't read your email if you didn't email me. You know, that's on you, really. Not me. I'll be back in a second. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. That was a trailer for Shag Matthews' new podcast. Pretty sure you just heard that. You don't need me to explain that to you. Um, But he recently did a three-hour opus about the original miniseries V, written, directed, and produced by Kenneth Johnson. And he had me on it. I was on that with him for the first hour, hour, 20 minutes of that show. It's uh, absolutely brilliant. It's a great show. There's a particularly good bit about the music of V. It's right in the wheelhouse of this particular show. If you listen to the show, you will like the topic of that conversation. It's a 1980s genre television show. It's right in our sweet spot, isn't it? So I urge you to go and check that out. The first episode he did as well with his, his brother and sister was fun as well. But that, that first episode about V was brilliant. And there are more V episodes to come. And I very much look forward to listening to them. Okay. Uh, you got two plugs though. So I thoroughly expect the check to clear as soon as possible. Our emails tonight. First off, Rob McCarthy has emailed in. Hey Andy. Hey Rob. My film expert buddy says 60s TV looks better because it's film rather than videotape. That is correct. It was only in the 80s, I want to say late 80s, they moved to videotape for American television. Um, The resultant effect being that when that was converted to PAL from NTSC, which is America and Britain's distinctive televisual broadcasting formats, stuff from America suddenly started to look like cack. Because the NTSC process, in the conversion between NTSC and PAL, it kind of speeds it up a bit. But you didn't really notice as much on videotape. Because as as I think I've mentioned before when I've discussed stuff like that, videotape is HD. Which is why you can go back to stuff like the original Star Trek and films like Planet of the Apes and stuff filmed in the 60s and 70s and 80s, shot on proper film and clean them up to proper HD. Because they were shot on film. Whereas stuff that was shot on videotape, it's much more costly to go and clean that up. 
So that's why uh, 60s TV looks better. Uh, for a straight guy, I have an awfully big crush on Robert Vaughan. To each their own, Rob. I am not here to judge. You, you, you do you, mate. If you fancy Robert Vaughan, that's perfectly acceptable. If I was going to go for a man from Uncle, it'd probably be Kuriakin, personally. But, you know, as I say, nobody's judged here. It's a broad church. All are welcome. Wait, Thrush never had a nuclear weapon before? I, I, I don't know. I didn't watch every episode. You would have to ask somebody far more learned than I on the topic of the man from Uncle to see if they did have a nuclear weapon before that episode. Uh, I never heard anybody say James Bond couldn't be blonde. That seems odd. Well, it did get said. And I think Barbara Broccoli's response to that was, well, Roger Moore was blonde. And that's kind of sort of true. He's hurried dark into a sandy brown by the time he took over Bond. But yeah, when he started, he was a lot blonder. Certainly a lot more fur-hurred than Connery. Uh, and Lazenby. So it was a stupid criticism made by silly people who um, presumably were forced to eat their words after Casino Royale came out. I never hated the marriage, and if they're going to keep fiddling with it anyway, just have it. Uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm past Curry. I'll be brutally honest with you, mate. Uh, I'm past Curry now. They, they have a married, they don't have a married either. Pick one and stick with it instead of doing this will-they-won't-they-moonlighting thing that was old 20 years ago. Spider-Man is the worst character to pull you did something in missing time and we hate you now. He's not Doctor Strange. He's not Batman. He's not Wolverine. He doesn't do off-panel mysteries. That is very true. He doesn't really do off-panel mysteries. He's not really a mystery detective kind of character, is he? There's stuff going on off-panel, but May is still alive? What the f... Yes, May is still with us. I am. I'm quite glad to say I don't mind that May. I mean, she's getting younger, so she's not going to, you know... She's been dipping in the Lazarus pit. Not going to be dying anytime soon. Our next email, new amazing one, is from Professor Alan. Oh, hello, Alan. It's been a while. I've enjoyed all your Spidey coverage over the years, and it was fun to hear you tackle a new comic for a change. It was, it was fun. I'll give you that. Yeah, it was fun for me as well. Your comments echo a lot I've heard from others regarding current issues, especially Marvel's for some reason. Lots of near-empty pages, pointless double-page spreads, and a general waste of dollars, pounds, euro, or any other applicable currency. The only thing new comics aren't usually a waste of is time, because they tend not to take much time to read. Thank you for buying this one, so we didn't have to. Yeah, not at that price. Hope you enjoy the John Carter of Mars novel. I did very much enjoy A Princess of Mars. I thought it was a lot of fun. It felt a tad overwrought, overwritten, sorry, compared to Tarzan. I don't know whether Tarzan was serialised in a magazine, but Princess of Mars felt like it was. It also felt very much like a Jack Kirby comic, in that there's just these explosions, this, this vomit of brilliant ideas on every page that Burroughs doesn't really spend a lot of time exploring. But you can see where a lot of the pulpy science fiction that followed owes an awful lot to Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I can't help but think that the film would have been at least a modest cult success had they stuck with the costuming budget of the books. Take care and keep up the good work, said Alan. Thank you very much, Alan. He, Professor Alan, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Darkness to Light and various other gubbins. He's around like Superman. He's always around. That's it for the email section tonight. If you want to email in, HeyKidsComics at virginmedia.com is the place to do so. I hope you'll consider dropping me a line and joining in 
with the discourse. I'll see you all next time. No idea what, you know, see where the muse texts me. Eh? Take care. It's all going to be fine. Hopefully. Goodbye. <laughs>